Welcome back to the Power Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Katie Kelly. Katie is a two-time Paralympic triathlete and she won a gold medal in Rio and was sixth in Tokyo. So welcome to the podcast, Katie. Hi, Liz. Thank you. Great to have you with us. Can you tell us a little bit about your story, uh, your background, how you got into paratriathlon, uh, just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I came in at the ripe age of 39 into high-performance sport, mm. not the usual pathway for a, a triathlete. And it was by way of circumstances, uh, a condition I have called Usher's syndrome. So it's a deaf-blind condition and gradually you lose your hearing and eyesight over time. So you know, I was a regular young Aussie kid growing up, loved sports, did everything. My hearing loss was picked up when I was five, but they never knew the cause of the hearing loss. And in, I always had a bit of challenge with balance. And at uni, I started to really notice I was struggling at nighttime going out with my friends and driving in underground car parks. Mm-hmm. And then I saw an ophthalmologist at age 22 when I was working at the NRL in Sydney. And he said, Katie, the reason for your hearing loss you've got this um, deaf-blind condition called Usher's syndrome and gradually you'll lose your eyesight and hearing will continue to get worse. Mm. So obviously that was pretty devastating mm. news, but I guess I've always looked at, you know, the upside of things and continued on and I always loved doing marathons and half marathons, my favourite event. So eventually, Liz, that led to um, once I was confirmed legally blind, I contacted Triathlon Australia and and said, hey, guys, you know, I'm really keen to do the Hawaii Ironman and, you know, they have five physically challenged spots. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe there's a way I can get into one of those spots. Uh, and they said, Katie, we're actually looking for vision-impaired athletes for Rio, which is on in 18 months' time. Would you be interested? So literally it's just started from that phone call. You know, I was someone working in sports administration roles, 20 years in sort of corporate marketing roles, and here I was having this opportunity to actually be on the sporting field and and compete at the highest level. So that's sort of how all that started. That's a bit of a mind bend to go from the concept of doing an Ironman triathlon to actually being asked to do a sprint triathlon at a a Paralympic Games, isn't it? Yeah, and Liv, my first thought was I was so disappointed that paratriathlon was only in sprint. (laughs) You know, I was used to training like a just typical age grouper with with my mates in Newcastle we'd we used to ride three hours around on it do our long ride to say the Central Coast Triathlon Club they had little races at Lake Macquarie and for us we're like oh well we better do our long ride beforehand and then that's just a little hit out but obviously you know I love this long slow and steady yeah so it took a lot to to build that fitness to be really that short hard and fast and I remember my first triathlon race in Yokohama with McKeeley Jones as my guide. And I remember asking Corey Bacon, my coach, and said, so how do I race this? And he's just like, just hard. Just go hard. <laughs> I'm like, as hard okay. as you can for as long as you can. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't think about it. You just absolutely floor yourself. So it was a, a very different mindset to Ironman. Yeah, very, very. And so what is your classification in paratriathlon? Yeah, good question. It's a vision impaired. And within vision impaired, which a lot of my friends learnt at Tokyo, there's actually three 
categories within BI. So there's B1 and then there's B2 and 3. So the B1s in triathlon have no sight and, you know, hats off to them. Mm-hmm. I just can't imagine competing with no sight. Uh, I mean, my sight is deteriorating and I hope that I'll always have some. Mm. But I just admire the competitors, of the likes of Susanna Rodriguez, who won gold in Tokyo, have no sight. And so they start three minutes, 48 seconds ahead of the rest of us. Right. And so the B2s and B3s, which is my category within the vision impaired class, we start three minutes, 48 seconds behind that first wave. So it's like a different wave starts within our class. And it makes for a really exciting race, Liz, because we're, it's a cat and mouse. We're effectively playing catch up. trying to run down yeah. the B1s. Yeah. And, and their strengths are they're usually very good swimmers and they're pretty decent on the tandem. Um, they don't get disadvantaged too much. But our strength, obviously, is having some sight for the run. So that's really where we catch them. You know, they're still developing as runners. So, yes, it's a vision-impaired class. And in paratriathlon, there's five official international classes which go from the wheelchair class to ambulant-type classes to the vision-impaired class. And in Tokyo, they still had three classes from the men's and women's. But at our world championships every year, we have all five classes competing. And one day, eventually, hopefully, triathlon will have all five classes represented at the Paralympics. Yeah, that'd be that'd be really good because the classes that were competing in Rio were a little bit different to the classes that they had competing in Tokyo, correct? Yeah, Liz. And, and I mean, that's where I'm just so grateful. Like my the timing of that phone call in January 2015, the fact that also the VI women's class was a class, you know, it, because the VI men's wasn't. wasn't part of the program. Mm-hmm. So Jonathan Goulash, who's like my brother, he's a fellow Australian paratriathlete, Usher Syndrome as well. It's so wonderful to have somebody like that to engage and talk to about what we're going through with Usher. Mm-hmm. And Jono was fit and ready for Rio, but the men's VI wasn't included and, and he was such a gem. He just was so supportive and so proud of my achievements. Mm-hmm. And so what was wonderful was the men's VI was included in Tokyo yeah. and to be there with Jono. Yeah. And he's like, how come you get to go to two Paralympics? And <laughs> but, yes, it, it all comes down to, um, to the classes that World Triathlon deemed the most competitive, I guess, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, how many athletes do they have worldwide competing in those classes and how competitive are they? Yeah. And obviously they want to showcase the best classes at the highest level in Paralympics. And the women's VI has always been quite competitive, which is fantastic. It's so great. And the growth of the sport, paratriathlon, and the competitiveness of the athletes is outstanding. And I think we started to see some of those paratriathletes really, we're talking nutrition today, I really noticed the body shapes and the physicality of our paratriathletes was almost matching to what you see in a triathlete in the Olympics. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, 2016 Rio Games was the first time paratriathlon was included in the Paralympic Games. So relatively speaking, it's still a young Mm. sport, I guess, at the international level, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess having been in the program and I've, I've you know, trained with the Jazz um, Hedgelands and Curas 
and seen them when they were 18 and 19 and now they're 26, 27. And I can see the work that dietitians do with athletes and what it takes for that body to evolve. And now I see these girls just mm. amazing physiques that are capable of doing the work that they do. And I think in paratriathlon, someone like me, I mean, I was very fit and lean, but I hadn't been built into that elite Model. body yeah. as such that was capable of handling the mm-hmm. stress. So really by the time I got there, I'd absolutely had given my body a good workout in doing the Ironman work that I did in my sort of early, late 20s, early 30s. And so in a way I was lucky, I think, to get to Rio because I was just sort of holding things together. And so then I had a lot of injuries after Rio and I think that was a reflection of the stress I'd put my body under. So really I had to do a lot of work with my dietitian, Greg Cox, to sort of rebuild and I had to rebuild into a different body type, like stronger to be able to withstand the intensity of training for sprint triathlon. As a and this is somebody, you know, who's 42, 43, 44 by the time I got to Tokyo, I was 46. Yeah. Yeah. And and so what did that mean in terms of what you had to change dietary wise and also just in terms of your mindset around food? Did did there have to be a bigger focus on fueling the training differently or did you have to focus on eating a bit more in order to develop that robustness or Mm. you know what was some of the big changes you had to make yeah I think like you would know there's certainly it's such a huge education piece and so when you're able to do that with a young 16 17 year old they can really get that right mindset from a young age of what they need and then they'll learn hard lessons pretty early on if they get some injuries and learn, okay, this is underfueling. I really need to follow the advice of people around me. And so I've seen some young triathletes have had some stress fractures and stuff, and and now I've seen them three or four years later, and you sort of know they've learned earlier on. So for someone like myself, it was definitely a mindset and, and education and constant reinforcement from Greg Cox around you need to um, – trust the advice that we're giving you and you need to build your capability so that you can withstand the stress that you're putting you know that to train every day mm-hmm. and Liz my training was no less than a, an Olympian triathlete you know I trained with Matt Houses and Jazz and mm-hmm. obviously my volume was less yeah and my times <laughs> but what the effort and the output required so we I had a lot of consultation with Greg to just constantly check in and if there was, we felt a a drop in sort of capacity or I had some training sessions where I just didn't execute and I was like, okay, what's that fatigue? Why is that setting in? Yep. And, yeah, learning to the volume of what you needed. I've always ate, like my nutrition choices are excellent, but it was about, okay, Mm -hmm. topping that up and bigger bowls of serving and and topping that up again. And and so allowing myself to do that and trusting, well, you you sort of, you equal out in terms of, okay, I need this kind of intake of food and nutrition uh, and energy because the the output is is there. So, yeah, it really is such a huge component of triathlon, um, the nutrition element. So can you give us an example of what the output was? So can you give us a bit of an example of what a typical training week would look like for you in those 
say in the middle of your biggest training phase? Yeah, I guess if you're looking at an off-season for me was from October through to sort of February where you're doing about like at least 20, 22 hours of actual work and then around that it might be another two to three hours of preparation, i.e. land work before a swim, stretching and so on. So I would, people would ask me, I would say my time commitment for triathlon with everything around it, including say physios, would be about 30 to 35 hours a week the training time about 20. Mm. So a typical day, very structured and routine, and I learned that that I had to have routine. The minute I changed my routine was when I got sort of tired or run down. And Liz, coming from a background of working, you know, in sort of corporate marketing roles, and I was still flying to Sydney for certain things, and I really had to mm. almost, I, I had to, I, I don't like to use the word give up, but I had to put those on hold if I was going to, be a healthy, strong athlete and be able to consistently train. Yeah. So a, a typical week, you know, Monday morning was almost a three-hour ride. Bree, my guide, would meet me and and we'd meet up with the squad. I'd start off the day with, you know, a bowl of oats sort of thing and get on the ride. And then you, nutrition on riding was another piece I had to, to get better at. And, and that would be some raising toast that you would pack, you know, a banana, some gels, your Gatorade. Mm-hmm. Dan Acton, my coach, was always, we'd constantly be stopping refueling and a refuel would be, you know, grab another Gatorade or grab a, um, a chocolate milk or something like that. You get home on a, after a ride and it'd be a big brekkie at 9 or 10 o'clock. I'd have sausage and sport in between that. So as soon as I finished my mm-hmm. ride, sausage and sport, off, have brekkie at a cafe Come back home, rest. I'm going to stop. Then, I'm going to stop you. Stop you for yeah. one second and explain sure. what a sustrogen sport is. Um, so it's like a, a a chocolate milk, I guess, with a little bit of extra protein. And would you make it up on milk or on water? Uh, mostly water. And I started doing coconut water, and Coxie didn't mind that because it was a bit more um, like a, a I guess a carbohydrate sugar factor in that. So yeah, three scoops of sustrogen with mm-hmm. ice coconut and ice it was quite a a nice slushy to have after you know hot ride in summer and that was almost immediately after the ride so as soon as I got in the door I'd make that up so I'm having that within half an hour so then I can have a shower etc and then head to grab you know a good brekkie which would be poached eggs and the things that you would expect and toast and all of that and coffee and then sleep and in the afternoon was like a 90 minute swim so I'd be doing around mm-hmm. anywhere between 3.8 to 4.2 up to 5K swims in the off-season. Swimming I found I had to fuel up massively for because I'm not a natural swimmer. Right. And so that was another piece of, yeah. And so at least I'd have to have another lunch before swim, which I found quite challenging. I'd already had breakfast at around 9.30, 10, and then I need to eat mm-hmm. something else again at 12, 12.31 to get to the swim for 2, 2.30, to swim right through to 4, 4.30, get home and dinner. And so that was Monday, Wednesday, Saturdays with that. And all the other days are very similar, obviously, with running involved in gym as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so with, I guess, with the intensity, so I, I don't know that we actually covered the for those who don't know what the distances are for a paratriathlon, yeah. so that it's considered what they call a sprint distance. Yeah. So the swim is 
How long? The swim seven fifty meters, and the bike's twenty kilometers, and the run is five k. And roughly, how long would that take you to complete? Yeah, Rio was one hour and nine minutes, and that was in open water in the in the Cocabana Beach. Obviously, the elite guys are you know what are they getting down to fifty fifty five, but the Parachai vision impaired at Tokyo. I mean, I was slower at Tokyo than Rio for different reasons, but the humidity and everything in Tokyo was quite intense. But I think that Susanna, who won my race, got it down to, I think, a minute five, minute four, and she's doing a, mm. uh, she's doing like a 350K pace for a 5K run. So really getting... It's pretty fast. Pretty fast. Yeah, it's, it's outstanding. It's great. Yeah. So you have to be, and, and I guess one of the unique things with with the vision impaired paratri is that you have a guide who is with you for every section of that race. So obviously that guide has to be pretty talented in their own right mm. in order to be able to keep the same pace as, as you and, and you know, not be yeah. actually someone who slows you down, correct? Yeah, yeah that's right. I mean, um, the advantage, where you gain your advantage, obviously, is a guide that is very strong on the bike they can only go I guess as fast as you in the swim and the run mm-hmm. I found McKeeley you know it was just such an extraordinary partnership she just knew how to race races strategically and and where we could gain well she won a silver medal in 2000 <laughs> on her own so yeah. she she should know how to race it at a, at a big championship shouldn't she yeah how many world champs did she win and she won the Hawaii Ironman and just yeah. uh the, the amount of racing that she's done over her life, yeah, that I, you just couldn't buy that. It was just yeah. so. I think for her too, when we swam together, I could really sit on her hips nicely, and so my times were always quite good in the swim. And I think that was because I was she's she's one seventy one centimeters, and I'm one sixty one. You know, ten. Mm-hmm. I don't know foots and inches, but. So we had that, that, that worked really well. And I think it even worked well on the tandem because I could really tuck behind her with her height. Yep. And the bike, yep. the Calfee bike we had, it's about $20,000 carbon bike, specifically built the frame for her height and my height. So it was almost, you can imagine a taller person needs a, a different sort of frame set at the front to what I need at the back. So it was very specific yep. for us and our heights and, and then I just think she knew at that time my strength was my run, so she just knew how to really ride well to give us the best possible lead so that I could finish it off on the run and just hold on sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I know that Rotterdam it was such a challenging course, uh, World Champs Rotterdam, a lot of the triathletes would remember a cobblestone, it was insane and it was bucketing down rain. Yeah, it's really slippery when it's wet. Yeah. I I would I'm very comfortable to say I, I won that race because of the way she rode that bike course. Mm-hmm. She got us enough of a lead on that really technical course, and it was enough for me then to to hold the run I needed to. So yeah, the, the guide partnership is is massive, and and Bree and I we were together for four nearly four years, and she was just outstanding in her commitment. And we had different strengths as a team. Mm-hmm. And, again, the, the, the what we focused on I think was a little bit different to the, the McKeeley and what, what I had. 
I think Bree and I really um, were very similar in body types. And we had, again, I had to get another bike, another $20,000. It was just expected, okay, Katie, you need a new bike. Um, so mm. I went out and fundraised for that. And and so we, I guess we were real strength-based, Bree and I. You can imagine two sort of shorter pocket rockets. And, yeah. um, and she was really strong on the bike. And I think for me, I just, I got stronger as an athlete. But my age caught up with me, you know, mm. I, I wasn't getting quicker. And I, you know, by the time I got to Tokyo, I was 47 and I was 41 in Rio. And those, you know, the 40s really starts yeah. going downhill. <laughs> That's where you want to do the longer distances, not the sprint distances. That's right, yeah. Is that, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Wow. And so I guess... The transition from being a full-time worker mm. to being a triathlete, a full-time athlete, yeah. that was obviously a pretty tough thing for you to do. How much work were you doing in that in that lead into both Rio and, and Tokyo? Were you working at all or were yeah. you working part-time? Yeah, in Rio I was, still, I was working with Athletics New South Wales in a marketing role and I carried that on right up until sort of three months prior and working part-time. And I used to travel from Canberra to Sydney. I'd get the early bus in the morning at 4 a.m. in the morning and get to Sydney Olympic Park at 7.30. And then I'd get there and I'd do my swim and I'd have to swim by myself and then I'd get to work by sort of 9.30. And then at lunchtime I'd duck out to the gym at Sydney Olympic Park and get gym work in. And then I'd get the bus home at six o'clock that night and, and travel back and the next morning might be a ride out at Stromlo or, you know, around Canberra and, and then I'd work from home that day at well, I used to work out at the AIS, I had a desk there. So I was doing that trip to Canberra as Canberra Sydney a couple of times a week during that eighteen months leading into Rio. And then once I moved to the Gold Coast and said teamed up with Dan Atkins and I was so happy to be out of the cold weather that increasingly Dan was like if you you're just taking too much on Mm. you know and I was flying to Sydney then for my work Mm. I just just fly down every couple of weeks and and I always had speaking engagements and and different sponsorship and all these things that athletes have but I really resisted it because Liz I didn't see myself as an elite athlete I I didn't have that mindset and I almost felt embarrassed to call myself that because I thought I'm even though I'd won gold medal at Rio. Finally, I think by the time I got to 2017 and 18, I used to, you know, those forms where you write, they ask you what your occupation is. I finally started saying a professional athlete. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, six years it took you to get to that point. Yeah. And then I got to the point where I'm like, yep, this is fine. I, I kept wanting to do more. I thought I should be doing some more study. And my sister was like, just focus on doing this, just let it go, you know, it's okay. So so pretty much, Liz, by the time I got to 20, I guess, 2019 to 2020, 21, I was just full-time professional triathlete. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm out of it, I'm reintegrating back into a working life and, you know, just downsizing training. And, and, and again, it's like, okay, I don't need to eat as much I'm not training as much so it's another readjustment Mm. and also mindset change just being back in the professional work environment I'm not just surrounded by athletes and in this bubble and which was an amazing very privileged 
inverted common bubble to be in. But um, yeah, it's it's been quite the the last seven eight years. I guess not the typical kind of life experience most would go through in their in their forties. <laughs> No, no, fairly substantial shift. And so with the change in your training now, do you find that your appetite has has dropped? And and I guess that goes back a little bit further to when you were doing more training. Did your appetite pick up or did you actually find that you weren't hungry and that was part of the, the dif- difficulty in actually feeding yourself more? Did you find that you just didn't have the appetite compared to what your body needed? No, I think by by the time I, you know, you know, Greg Cox was such a patient man. So by the time we got to two thousand and sort of nineteen, after being with him for a couple of years, uh, generally I needed that fuel and I wanted it. You know, it was just the training drove the fueling, and yeah. and obviously then the fueling drives the training and the performance and the execution and the consistency. So once I kind of got that, it was like, yeah, it's just have what what I needed. You know. And I, I needed – then I got to a point where I was topping up more because the, the particularly the swimming, the intensity of the swimming, Dan, really has a big emphasis on that with our fitness and uh, I just needed that fuel to execute the swim session. So if, it, mm-hmm. if I didn't execute, it would be like, well, did I have enough fuel to get through? So coming out of that, yes, it's an adjustment of um, – uh, yeah, my appetite definitely dropped and obviously the intensity of training. I, I still uh, I think it's always in your DNA if you're a triathlete, like every morning. I did a three-and-a-half-K swim this morning with my master's swim squad, which is so fun. Um, but I'm just cruising. Like, yeah. I know I'm at the back of the lane. I, I don't, they go, do you want to lead? I'm like, no, I don't. No. <laughs> um, and I'm just happy to – I just love getting up at 5 o'clock and doing the squat at 5.30 and – um, but, yeah, I'll have a little bit of brekkie, but it's not like, you know, the, the volume that obviously you needed when you were in the high-performance game. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's really interesting. I think that your appetite actually can um, be a good guide at times in terms of, you know, if you trust your appetite to tell you how much you need to eat, then it actually can be a good guide. And I think that's you know, that's useful both at both ends in terms of the increase in training but also the, the drop in training if your appetite Yeah, and I think one thing I like, Greg, well. yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I was, it, um, to add to that is Greg used to always say um, just, you know, like almost challenge yourself to go to, to, to get more in and see where you land. So sort of play with the next six weeks top it up even more and see if it, what the output is. And mm-hmm. invariably it was like, oh, okay, you top it up more, but you 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 obviously created a stronger body that was more capable to train harder. But that whole, uh, you, you, you're the scientist, you know, the equivalent of how all that just sort of works out, you know. Yeah. So that was interesting for me, just trusting that, okay, I'm just going to consume and get more energy in and it kind of, it equals out, but obviously it increases your capacity to um, sustain and, and absorb. That was his word: absorb the the volume of work that you needed to do. The volume, yeah, yeah. Did you have any issues during that time of your training with iron levels? We we did a podcast; it'll be up. Actually, it just got loaded yesterday on iron, 
And yeah. and so I guess it's quite topical following off the back yeah. of that. Did you have any issues with your iron levels? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I've always been, I guess, a fairly light person. I've never been a meat eater, but even though I was born in Casino, which is the beef capital of Australia, we have beef, beef wheat cream and we have <laughs> breakfast with the butchers when I was a kid. And But by and large, been mostly vegetarian and so very strategic with, you know, taking iron tablets and, and having that with vitamin C daily, uh, and I still do. I, I certainly had that. And then also, you know, maintaining good calcium level too so i top up like i have soy soy milk and you know the usual everyone i have the opro yogurt and that sort of thing cotter and cheese and whatever but you know talking to my doctor during the triathlon days we were like you need to top up so i'd have calcium d tablets okay as a top up as well and sometimes strategically have those just before a swim session uh, where you're going to really sweat it out in the pool in the, you know in the Queensland summer afternoon you're out there in the afternoon so I'd really time those in either before a really long bike ride or a, a hard swim session uh, they were pretty much the two vitamins that I needed and sausage obviously gives you a how many is in the sausage a good good dose of, of a few things in there so yeah yeah it's it's vitamin for it's you know fortified with with nutrients so it does act act as a bit of a, a little supplement in and of itself so yeah yeah that would have been useful yeah i, I found sausage and i mean for any athletes it's just um it's just such a good way to just get the extra in you know so nothing gets lost in terms of just making sure you keep topping up and Chemist Warehouse did very well out of me with sausage in for uh, the last six years. I went through a lot of tins and I did approach them for sponsorship, but <laughs> no good. So I, I guess I, I want to talk a little bit about your impairment specifically about Usher's syndrome. So you have both the vision and the hearing impairment. Can you give us a bit of an out, outline of what you can see? in terms of where your vision is at at the yeah. moment and then also what can you hear? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I'm looking at you at a laptop screen here to give the listeners a sense and, you know, when you're looking at someone on a, a Teams call and you're looking at that central video, well, if I look at that, Liz, I can't really see outside of the laptop frame unless I scan to my right mm-hmm. or left. So it's like tunnel vision. So the ophthalmologist said I had less than 10 degrees vision, but that it's also Usher syndrome. It's the night vision that gets affected at first. So night blindness sort of kicks in. Mm -hmm. And so when there's more light, it's better. And I guess the best way to describe it is if you're looking for a camera uh, and you're taking a photo in a, in a room and you know how you've got to stand back to get everybody in that photo. Mm-hmm. So with my vision, I've got to stand back so I can sort of capture more of a peripheral view. Yep. But if I'm really close to you and we're having a, a glass of water or whatever and there's someone to your right and left, it's too intense for me because I, I can only look at you and I can't. So I need to stand back so I can sort of get the full scope. Mm-hmm. So that's why people go, what can you see when you go outside? And and I can see as well as you, like I can see everything. It's just that I, because the vision is tunnelled in my immediate uh, Line of sort of where I'm standing, if, if a little child walks past or a you dog. You can't see them coming from the side. 
I can't see them. Yeah. yeah. So I use a cane and the cane is more so that uh, I can build that sort of barrier around me and others don't come into that because I can't anticipate them. So I've actually in the process of getting a guide dog and it takes a very long time through the NDIS and so on. So that's the eyesight and it's slowly getting worse and it's it's, it's hard, like it's, it's been quite confronting times and I was told recently I should consider learning Braille and, you know, I nearly felt physically sick because I just never mm. thought that I would be in that position. But then I'm like, oh, it's good to learn a new language, you know, look at the bright side of it. So then um, my... Think of it in a different way. Yeah, that's it. My girlfriend's like, oh, I'll learn Braille with you. Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> like, it's cool when you don't have to sort of thing. And then the hearing is, you know, I'm so grateful for technology. Uh, hearing aid technology from when I was a little five-year-old, oh, that was so clunky and they'd whistle and I used to literally throw them out. Mum and Dad would just be screaming their heads off like, what are you, where are your hearing aids? But the hearing aids are really You couldn't good. hear them because you didn't have them. Yeah, in. that's right. And they'd be like, oh, she's just walked off again. So <laughs> hopefully I don't need to get cochlear Liz, but, yeah, that's sort of something I have to consider and it just depends on the, the, the hearing, mm-hmm. how it is. I mean, to give you an idea, when I was five or six, I was mild hearing loss and my um, hearing was around... 30 dB, dB, which is like on the audiogram, and now I'm up to 75, 85, and if you're profoundly deaf or deaf, you're up to 110, 120. So I've kind of gone from 10, 20% less hearing than the average person to now 60, 70%, to put it in that context. But, yeah, I find that eyesight is is the confronting part for me in this stage of my life, yeah. And so are you are you fully capable of doing all your own cooking and food preparation? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, independence is everything to me and it's just about adapting and modifying your environment. So I'm very much a minimalist in terms of, uh, you know, furniture and I don't like low-level low coffee tables. You know, I've got a beautiful little apartment here and, yeah. and I'm near the, near the beach and near the shops and cafes and near my local swim club and everything is within walking distance so I've obviously chose this lifestyle so that I don't have to rely on Ubers and taxis or rely on friends and family so yeah because that's that's part of the vision impairment is that you you legally can't drive and so you're reliant on either other people Uber or public transport yeah and I haven't been able to drive They, they took my license off me literally at the road traffic authority in New South Wales in Sydney I remember going there and she's like, can you hand your licence back in, please? And I literally had to hand the card back over at the age of 25. So, But my dad, he lets me get in the old valley at Ute when I go home so I can just check that I can still drive a manual car around the backyard sort of thing. So I'm used to it It's and I, I embrace it. It's a way of life and I, I do love the fact that I walk everywhere. I get that incidental exercise in through six or seven Ks that I do every day just from walking from A to B, getting around, it's great. I think it is a real advantage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but you have to factor it in in terms of your recovery times between, like between training sessions, you actually have to physically get home and, and that just potentially takes a little bit longer for someone with a vision impairment than it does with for someone who... Yeah, and I'll point to that. The Dan picked up on that. I was walking from Pizzy Park in, in on the Gold Coast and I'd walked to my apartment, in, which was 2K away, 
And so I used to get up early, walk to Pizzy at five in the morning. And and then and he's like, this walking's got to stop. And it's an extra uh, training session in and of itself every day. Yeah, but I didn't recognise it at that. I'm like, it's just a walk. He's like, no, it's not. And obviously with the training load, I came to appreciate I'm too tired. After a four, three hours sort of session in the afternoon at Pizzy, I'll be like, no, I'm getting a lift or I'm getting an Uber. So, yes, mm-hmm. incidental exercise is not what you strive for when you're in a high-performance program. <laughs> no, maybe now, yes, but not then. Yes, yeah, that's right. So I, it sounds like you learnt a lot from your journey as a paratriathlete. I have, and I'm so grateful for it, Liz. I think I think as a, an older individual in the program, it's very interesting to observe the culture of triathlon and I I could see that in the six, seven years that I was in it, you know, I see these young athletes come in and just how, you know, the care, Dr. Stacey Compton was part of the program when I was there and I said to her, you know, I really admired that she always had my health first and foremost. Mm -hmm. So it was like um, the triathlon was second And, and then I really appreciated the change and the shift in discussions around women's health and women's menstrual cycle and I could talk openly to Dan about it I'll be like I've got my periods my pains are not great because they really got quite intense he'd be like that's cool just do the warm-up and see how you feel and we'll back off the main and and again with Greg and dietitian it was very much you know looking at the cycle where you're at and that sort of thing so it's it's really great to see and obviously more and more with women's sport, women's cricket and women's basketball, AFL, mm. more investment in science research into getting the best for women athletes in terms of performance and understanding, I guess, their the, the differences. Uh, so more tailored in terms of programs that have been developed. Yeah, because, you know, if you look back at, at the historical research, there's, I think it's something like, 95% on males and 5% on females when it comes to research in elite sport. And so mm. you know, females can't be treated just like smaller males. They're, they're, they do have major differences. The menstrual cycle is one of those major differences, but the hormone interactions and iron levels, for example, iron, we, as we talked about in the last podcast I posted, the iron requirements are more than double that of the male and yeah. you know, with a smaller energy intake than a male, it's harder, more challenging to meet that iron requirement. So there's a lot of specificities for females mm. that just really are still evolving in terms of our real understanding of that. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I think what I wanted to say before too was I was very appreciative of high performance sport and what it's educated me with in terms of nutrition and good good health. And I really pleased to say that I've come out of it healthier than what I came into it Mm. and that's you know the the great team of people I had around me and with Dan and Greg and and Stacey Compton and and it just I think triathlon as a sport maybe uh, you would know more than me but the perception was in the earlier days it was really perhaps athletes were trained you know very differently to what they are today and, and and there's obviously a more sense of um, being, being able to build up the athletes to be really healthy and robust and capable to execute triathlon, which, you know, in the past has probably had, it'd be interesting to see what the injury rates are like now compared to say 10 years ago or when McKeeley Jones was racing, you know, they, they just 
it sounded like they just did some really insane sessions and really pushed themselves to different levels to what they do today but maybe just because of the benefit of knowledge of course not taking away from those programs and yeah you know the benefit of knowledge and time and research etc means that the sport is probably a lot a lot smarter and uh, able to ensure athletes are a lot healthier yeah i we we talk about building robustness in an athlete in terms Mm. of you know that that ability to just withstand from an immune function from a an injury function just the ability to be able to keep hitting the training targets it's all about the robustness of the athlete and that's built through the careful management of their their training but also the matching of dietary intake to needs and so yeah it's 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 all about longevity both as an athlete and beyond being an athlete you know you want them to be able to come out the other end and still lead a healthy life afterwards so uh, I think yeah there's definitely been a mind shift in that perspective yes and i love seeing the women triathletes that are able to is it um oh, gee she's my favorite athlete nicholas berrig right what a dynamite just and she's gone yeah. away and had children and come yeah. back and she still came where did she come in tokyo was she oh, and in rio was definitely and, in the top 10 yeah it's yeah. phenomenal yeah. It's so good that obviously with science and knowledge that women can, there's, I think it's so much still untapped in the potential of a female in the high performance space and what they can achieve, mm. you know, with or without babies in between. So, yeah. yeah, I just love seeing that, you know, they're my role models and I see, I think for a lot of women when we see someone like that is still being able to compete at the highest level after having children. And it says a lot about then the investment in the health and getting things right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, Katie, it's been lovely being able to hear so much about your story and what you've learned. From that, what recommendations do you have for athletes who are coming into para sport and particularly into para triathlon and, and, you know, taking it from that older age group because that that's one of the things with para-athletes is that some people acquire their impairment later on in life and so come into sport at a later age. So any mm. recommendations that you have for them? Well, it, you know, it is about that trusting the people around you and yeah. I was a little stubborn, I guess, in my ways when I first came in in terms of trusting what the coach was saying and what the, the, you know, the the amazing qualified people I had around me like Greg. And obviously in in a a sport like triathlon, it's your health and your nutrition that's so important to get right because you won't be able to train or perform. And it's almost like that's the first pillar. Well, you would probably say it is, which is why the foundation I set up after Rio is called Sport Access Foundation. So we provide grants for young Australians with disabilities to help their access into sport. And last year we launched a a partnership with a a sports dietitian to support the the recipients of our Pathway to Paralympic grants. And it's been really well received. And we know that that's probably the big piece, Liz, is is paratriathletes coming in, is getting that that education, uh, um, you know, as soon and as quickly and as, as effectively as possible to um, get them on the right pathway. And I also think that para triathletes are getting younger, which is which is great. Uh, there'll be less of me around 
And I know Cole Burns at Triathlon Australia is doing some really great work. And any athlete I come across, I'll let him know about. We were texting this morning one of our young recipients, Sean Kendrick, who's 17. He just did a 3K in 16 minutes and something uh, cross country. And he's got no vision. And he's, he's doing blind cricket and he's been... He's he's done triathlons and he's and he's had this great young triathlete help him along. So more and more with the investment from national sporting organisations, which is fantastic, and Paralympics is is getting the the, the funding as as the able bods. Uh, we will see younger athletes coming in and getting that education uh, and development from a younger age. And I'm seeing it with the recipients that we have in the Sport Access Program. Um, one of our young girls was um, broke a club record in. A 3k run again she's a uh, track runner and it was something like she took 32 seconds off a 30 second record and she's vision impaired Layla Sharp she's 13 from um, Penrith way so these type of athletes are getting these opportunities at a younger age and so that will result in you know much more better prepared and capable para athletes competing in high performance and it's all about access and education at a younger age and getting them in when I say getting them in, giving them the opportunity to, to participate and be involved. Okay, great. What about any recommendations you have for practitioners like sports dietitians or sports psychologists, medical practitioners who are working with para-athletes who haven't been athletes all of their lives? Any recommendations for them? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess sometimes I was pretty frank and I guess I would be in a sense because having a bit more life experience than a 20-year-old athlete, mm. I found, you know, with Stacey, I had conversations with her where I was like, you know, you need to understand I'm, I'm doing this for this reason or, or I need you to talk to me differently about this because I'm, a you know, an adult woman sort of thing, you know, I'm not yeah. a new 20-year-old athlete. So it's really, I would say the message there is tailoring your messaging and communication around that athlete's life stage, et cetera. Not that Stacey didn't do that, but what I really admired her was we could have those conversations and kind of make it work for the both of us because of what we were sharing. And likewise, the dietitian partnership, you know, it really is. Uh, I mean, some athletes don't need it as much. I needed it because I was raw in that sense. So that, that was really important. I had a, a very trusting partnership with, Greg Cox and was able to, you know, be quite open with him and he challenged me a lot. So, yeah, uh, encourage practitioners to understand as much as possible about that athlete's particular type of disability. I found it mm -hmm. frustrating when practitioners didn't know, like, oh, yeah, you've got hearing and eyesight loss. And it's like, uh, yes, I do. And there's a bit more involved than just yeah. that. And yeah. Um, so really take the time to understand what that looks like, what does it look like today and what does it look like in a few years. And also every decision that a program is making, is to consider how that impacts the athlete with yeah. different mobility challenges. Yeah. Uh, because, and I know Dan would say, he goes, I just forget. And, you know, because I, I'm so capable and get around and people don't know that I have less than 10 degrees vision and, yeah. and you know, moderately quite um, with hearing loss and I'm like I know I know but you know changing that venue today was really threw me out and, you know I had to do this and that and that sort of thing 
So it's just ensuring there's those really good communications between the athlete and the practitioners and the coach and those in the program. Perfect. Thank you, Katie. That's fantastic. I always like to finish off by asking my podcast guests what their favourite food is. So, Katie, Kelly, what's your favourite food? Oh, I can eat anything, really, (laughs) as long as it's healthy, Liz. So just before we dialed in, I I just quickly threw in a bowl of quinoa, you know, rice and chickpea, bit of rocket, Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a bit of hummus, threw that in, and so that was lunch. Uh, tonight, I think I'm going to get some seafood. There's a great fish and chip shop across the road and they do sensational char grill calamari. So that's my food heaven. Wow. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, there we go, char grill calamari. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, thank you, Katie, for your time. Really appreciate it and your openness about your journey. It's been such a, an interesting journey and I think um, you've got a lot of experience to share and, and we really appreciate the time that you've taken to share that with us today. Yeah, thank you, Liz. And, you know, full credit to this podcast and what you're doing. It's fantastic it, and I think it, it's needed and more opportunities for power athletes to share their stories and insights and likewise for practitioners and, and those in the industry to, to gain that insight. So, uh, And it's just wonderful because it's obviously recognising contributions para athletes are now making in high performance sport thanks for the opportunity absolutely katie provides us with some really good insights as to some of the difficulties when coming into elite sport at an older age but also for someone who's built up their capability and adapted so well to their impairment how it can be so hidden to other people and they don't realize the impact that subtle changes like changing a training venue can make on those individuals. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any comments or feedback or people you'd like to listen to or hear from, please leave a message on our website. And I hope you join us next time when we talk to Gordon Marks, a para rowing coach.